My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be preaching from this passage that was just read. Um, And together, we are going to be engaging in this ancient Christian practice that Christians have done throughout the ages and are doing now all over the world as we gather to hear the Word of God read and preached among us. This is a spiritual practice to listen to God's word preached. And so as we do that, let me pray for us. Lord, we are gathered here to hear you speak. That's why we're here. We need you. We want to hear you. We want to see you. So Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And Lord, may your spirit be at work in this practice of preaching and listening. May you point us to Jesus and captivate our hearts that we would love you and our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage today began with that word, blessed. These are the Beatitudes. They begin with blessed. Whether we're religious or not, whether we believe in God or not, we tend to use that word blessed. We have an idea of what it means to be blessed. Um, we want blessing. We want the blessed life. But, but what does it look like? What does the blessed life look like? What do you picture when you count your blessings? Well, if you go to Instagram and you look up hashtag blessed, you will get 120 million pictures of what the blessed life looks like. Um, here's what you'll find. Millions of pictures of people, most of them young, all of them beautiful, Um, a staggering number of them in the gym flexing their muscles, blessed to have muscles. Um, You'll find pictures of cars and other toys and uh, good food. You'll even find a picture of a dot hog. Do you know what a dot hog is? It's apparently the meat of a hot dog split down the middle with the bread of a hot dog inside it. And it's evidently blessed to someone. Um, But is that what the, the blessed life looks like? Beauty, wealth, youth, muscles, and dot hogs? Is the blessed life full of comfort and personal peace and affluence? You know, years ago, a a French reformer named John Calvin said that most people think that the, the blessed life is the person who is free from annoyance, attains all he wishes, and leads a joyful and easy life. And maybe, maybe we think the same. If that's it, then you don't have to look very far to see someone who is willing to sell it to you. Follow my program and you too can have the good life. You too can have the blessed life. Eat like me. Exercise like me. Make decisions like me. Dress like me and it can be yours for a price. But as much as we buy and buy and buy and download dozens of apps on our phones to to try to expedite it, they don't seem to satisfy us, do they? You know, even the church can fall into this trap. You know, maybe you've heard of the prosperity gospel, 
where people say, trust in God and you'll be wealthy. You'll be comfortable. Maybe you think, okay, I'm not tempted to believe that. A, a material prosperity gospel, but, but maybe you've said something like this. If you want peace, joy, and happiness, if you want our version of the good life, then all you got to do is follow my program. Pray this prayer. Worship like this. Do these things and you too can have the good life. And sometimes the church is also in the business of blessing. But neither the secular nor the religious products that we consume seem to deliver on what they offer. They don't seem to make us flourish, at least in my experience. And often they leave us worse than they found us. So what does true human flourishing look like? Let me ask you, what are you imagining in your life right now? If, if I could just have this, then I would flourish. What would it take? Where do we find it? What would it look like to flourish? This is the ultimate question, right? This is what we spend our lives trying to figure out. This is the nut we want to crack. What do I have to do to flourish? What would it look like for me to live the good life? What is the good life? And that is the question that Jesus takes up in his Sermon on the Mount. That is the first thing that he addresses in what has come to be called the Beatitudes in our passage today. He's asking and answering this question, what does the good life look like? What does it mean to flourish? And what he tells us is not exactly what we might imagine. It's not what we picture. It might not even be what we want him to say. But for Jesus, the ultimate human flourishing is found in the promise, sorry, in the paradox, the promise, and the person of the blessed life. The paradox of the Beatitudes is this. It's that flourishing is found in the midst of suffering. Not in freedom from suffering, but in the midst of suffering. But we, all, we don't always catch that when we read these. See, everyone loves the Beatitudes. Kyle mentioned it last week that tons of people say they love the Sermon on the Mount. If you love the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably the Beatitudes that you're thinking about. It's probably not the part where Jesus is talking about, like, plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand. Um, that's usually not what people think about. We will get to that eventually. Um, usually people are thinking about the Beatitudes. Blessed. Blessed. I like that part where he talked about the blessings. But here's the problem. No one really understands them. They're beautiful and poetic and memorable, but they're anything but simple. They're hard to understand. And I, and I tell you this because I've spent a week looking at a lot of the different resources. There are hundreds of books on the Sermon on the Mount. And there, it seems like, as many interpretations on the Beatitudes. There doesn't seem to be an, an agreement on what Jesus is doing or what he's saying in these Beatitudes. You know, we, they don't even seem to agree on how many there are. Are there eight or are there nine? Are there three sets of three or are there two sets of four or four sets of two? Or is it a ladder? that you, you get one and then you go on to the next and the next and the next until eventually you're persecuted and you receive your reward? Or is there some relationship um, between these Beatitudes where maybe the first list is, is mirrored in the second half? 
See, if we slow down, we might realize, like, yeah, these are, this is actually hard to understand. Maybe that's, you know, if you're here today and you're wondering, well, how do we read them? I'll tell you. I don't know. I don't know the one key to unlocking the Beatitudes. And I think maybe that is, is part of the purpose, that, that we need to meditate and reflect on the words of Jesus over and over and over again as he draws us in for the Holy Spirit to reveal who Jesus is to us over and over again. So anyone who has a one-size-fits-all for the Beatitudes seems to have to bend in some area. Now, most of us, um, if you've heard the Beatitudes before, chances are you see it as, as a list of positive virtues, as a list of positive attributes. Um, and it's hard to not read them that way. Um, they've become so familiar that it's hard to hear it any other way. We, sometimes we think, you know, maybe these Beatitudes are just describing good, decent, quiet, unassuming people with quiet, comfortable lives. We say, verse 3, the poor in spirit. Oh, those are the quiet and unassuming people. And then we look at verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Oh, those are the people who mourn their sin and therefore avoid sin. So these are, are good people. Then we look at verse 5 and we say, blessed are the meek. We say, these are the humble, the salt of the earth, the good people. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We tend to think these are the good people who are so good that they want to be better. They want a little more righteousness. They've got a lot and they want more. We look at verse 7, blessed are the merciful, and we think these are the nice people. We look at verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, and we think the chaste. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, and we think these are the people who have somehow found how to avoid conflict. They live at peace with everyone. Verse 10, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are people who are so good that other people don't like them. The goody two-shoes, maybe. Um, the people who are really devout and pious. See, we can read this list as just a list of good, positive attributes that, that anyone would want and gloss over it and think that these are just natural virtues. Um, but do you see the problem in reading it that way? See, if we see these as just positive attributes that, you know, if anyone reflected on life long enough, they would eventually come to this conclusion. Um, then we tend to make them prescriptive. We tend to read them something like a path to the blessed life. In other words, we think if you want the blessing, you have to go out and do these things. God blesses the good people. If you want to be blessed, you got to go out and be good, and God will bless you, which means you either become self-righteous and entitled to God's blessing, or crippled by guilt and haunted by fear that maybe you're not among the blessed. Maybe Jesus isn't talking about me. But see, Jesus spent his ministry going to the unrighteous. Remember, he said, it's not the healthy, it's the sick that I've come for. It's the unrighteous that I've come for. And, you know, there's a problem with reading it that way. A, a Presbyterian, a Scottish Presbyterian, which 
are kind of considered the most Presbyterian of all Presbyterians because they're Scottish. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, he put it this way. He said that, that oftentimes we read the Sermon on the Mount in a way to generate the most amount of guilt in the fewest possible chapters. And if you're wanting to do that, you don't even need the rest of the sermon. Just take the Beatitudes and say, Jesus blesses good people, so go out and be good. Go out and be pure. Go out and be righteous. Go out and be meek and humble. Be a good person. Avoid conflict. And you'll live the blessed life, the life of flourishing. But if we look closer, we don't even have to do much digging to see that that can't be true in the text itself. Because if you, if you look at these things, you break them down, then these are not the things that anyone would normally consider blessed. These are not the ways if you said, okay, who are the blessed people in life? This is not the list that you would probably assemble. These might not even be the, be the things that you count when you count your blessings. I mean, who of us looks at, at verse 3, the poor in spirit? You know, if we break that down, what, what is he saying? He's, he's saying, we, we read this in Isaiah 57 earlier, it's the contrite heart. To be poor and lowly in spirit means that you're a sinner, and you know your sin, and you feel the weight of your guilt. It's contrition. Verse 4, those who mourn. Now, we like to say those that mourn their own sin and avoid sin. Um, Luke doesn't give us that option um, for any of these. If, you, if we were to flip over to Luke's gospel and look at his list of the Beatitudes, he just says, blessed are the poor, the hungry, and those who mourn without any qualification. But we're tempted to qualify those who mourn, but I don't think we have to. I think Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, those who suffer pain and loss. Happy, flourishing are those who mourn. Verse 5, the meek. These are those who don't have the means to assert themselves. So they're of humble means. Verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is not the people who are so full of righteousness that they want a little bit more. These are the people who don't have it, who hunger for it and thirst for it. And here in Matthew and elsewhere in the Bible, righteousness is not only thinking of personal righteousness. It's not just like me being right with God or me being good. There's also a sense of social and cosmic righteousness. These are the people who hunger for the world to be made right. And who hungers for the world to be made right? But those who have seen the ways that it's wrong. Those who have felt the weight of the curse those who have been mistreated, who are the victims of injustice, long for things to be made right. Those who are unrighteous are hungry for righteousness. Verse 7, the merciful, well, that's a positive thing to show mercy, but it also means that others have sinned against you. And it means that you go out of your way to find people who have been sinned against to show mercy to them. Verse 8, the pure in heart. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the chaste, but it means those who are devoted to God. And they do it in ways that are often unseen by men. To be pure in heart is, the, is, is contrary to being pure in external ex- appearances. Jesus is saying that the pure in heart, the ones who are, who are devoted to God and no one sees it, 
They are the blessed. Verse 9, the peacemakers. Well, to make peace means that you actually have to wade into conflict. I mean, who wants your kids to grow up and be like an international mediator? No, you don't want your kids to move to a place that's in conflict. You don't want your children to move to a war zone to mediate conflict. But it's the peacemakers who wade into conflict, both their own and others, and make peace. It's often a thankless and unnoticed job. Verse 10, the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Well, no one wants to be persecuted, especially when you're doing the right thing before God and before others. We want to be respected, and often we expect to be celebrated for our good deeds, not persecuted. So what is Jesus doing in this list that he calls blessed? These are the blessed. These are the ones who are living the good life, the life of flourishing. Well, he's saying that we can't trust our eyes. He's showing us that the way to human flourishing is a paradox, that things are not always the way they seem, and that the truly blessed life operates from a different scorecard than the way we naturally think, and that the blessed are the ones that the world often least expects to be blessed. See, Jesus is announcing his kingdom, and he's saying, my kingdom is an upside-down kingdom compared to the kingdoms of this world. And the ones who are blessed in my kingdom are the ones who are forgotten and overlooked in the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world always divide people into winners and losers. And we tend to think that the winners are blessed and the losers are cursed. They're the haves and the have-nots. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, it's the have-nots that are blessed. It's the ones who aren't valued in the current kingdom. And that includes both of what, what we might call suffering, the downcast, and the ones who pursue humility, peace, and justice. So when we enter the kingdom of God, it turns us upside down and it gives us a new way of seeing the world. That's what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes. A scholar named Michael Wilcock put it this way. He said, in the life of God's people will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. Values which are taken for granted by other men are questioned by them and are considered in the searching light of spiritual truth, hidden reality, and a future life. Do you see the paradox? In God's economy, it's the poor, the hungry, the, surf, the suffering, the ones who pursue righteousness who are blessed. To, to find human flourishing, you've got to flip your world upside down. And as hard as it is to understand that, it's even harder to believe it. You know, when you fall into sin and you're consumed with guilt, you know, I've done it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit? Really? It doesn't feel blessed. What about when you're taken to court and you're sued and you're in the rights, but the court rules against you? You long for justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Really? It doesn't feel blessed. 
What about when you're sitting on the couch in your living room with a couple whose marriage is on the rocks? You're wading into that conflict, and in the end, they don't stay together, and neither one of them talks to you anymore. Really blessed are the peacemakers? It doesn't feel like blessing. It doesn't feel like flourishing. You know, I belong to a, a group of pastors all over the country that um, support one another and pray for one another. And recently, one of my friends in this group moved across the country to plant a church. And he, on Monday, said, you know, I'm struggling. I'm overwhelmed. Life feels really weighty right now because I'm thinking about this church plant and all the details with that. I'm about to put an offer in on a house. I'm moving my mother up here to live with us. Everything feels weighty right now. And then on Tuesday, we got word that his mother, on the way to the airport, was hit by a car and killed. And they're mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't feel like blessing, does it? That doesn't feel like flourishing. You know, I thought I was supposed to get rewards, good things for my good deeds. Is God, can God really be blessing me even in the things that make me mourn? How can that be true? Well, the only way it can be true is if the kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom, and if there's more to the blessed life than what our eyes can see. And if that's the case, even in the morning, even in the awareness of our sin, even when the courts rule against us, we can still say that we're blessed. We're blessed. But Jesus didn't say that mourning is a blessing, did he? He didn't say that poverty of spirit is the blessing. No, he blessed the poor in spirit. He blessed those who hunger for righteousness. See, there are two halves of the Beatitudes. The first half is who is the blessed. It's the who, it's not the what. The second half is the blessing. To see what the blessing is, we have to look to the second half of the Beatitudes. And there we find this list of promises, the promises of the blessed life. I can't tell you how many people miss this. In all of those books that, I re- that I've con- consulted on the Beatitudes, most people spend all the ink on the first half of the Beatitudes and maybe a couple of sentences on the second half. But the second half actually show us what the blessing is like. The second half actually show us what it looks like to flourish because in the second half, we see the promises that are offered to the blessed. And these are essential because every verse that we read says that, says that it's for something. And that word for means because. It's a causative conjunction. So everything that happens in the second half of the verse is a condition of the first half of the verse. So why are the poor in spirit flourishing? Well, let's look at it. Verse 3, it says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why they're flourishing. 
Verse 4, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, for they shall inherit the land or the earth. Verse 6, for they shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where the blessing is. The blessing is not in the first half. The blessing is in the second half. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they're the poor in spirit are not blessed because of their poverty of spirit. They're blessed because they possess the kingdom. They're flourishing not because they're peacemakers, but because, because they shall be called sons of God. And the careful reader, if you read carefully, you'll notice that the first and the last, and this will show you that I think there are actually eight Beatitudes, um, not nine. The first and the last, verse 3 and verse 10, are in the present tense. And all the ones in between are future. Did you notice that? It begins and ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all the ones in between say, they shall be comforted. They shall see God. They shall be satisfied. They shall be called sons of God. They shall receive mercy. So what is Jesus trying to do here? Is he trying to say, um, you know, I'm going to trick them. I'm, this is a bait and switch. I'm going to make them think they're going to get all these things now, but then I'm going to like stuff the middle with a bunch of future things that they have to wait for. Well, I don't, I don't think he's doing that. It's not the fine print of the Beatitudes. Um, or maybe he's just saying, well, the poor in spirit and the persecuted get their rewards now, but everyone else has to wait for it. Maybe that's what he's saying. But, but that doesn't make sense either. No, what is he doing here? Jesus is telling us something else about his kingdom. In chapter 4, Jesus goes out and preaches and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. But, but here and throughout the gospel, he also tells us that the kingdom is coming. It's here and it's not here. It's present and it's future. Theologians put it this way, the kingdom of God is already and not yet and this is essential to understand the Beatitudes and all of Christianity because anything else can often disappoint us. can make Christianity feel like a bait and switch. And this happens all the time. With the material prosperity gospel, trust God and you will receive wealth. And then people don't and they think, what happened? Maybe I didn't have enough faith. Or people say, you know, maybe, maybe um, you know, they told me I was going to have peace and joy and happiness when I became a Christian. But now my life is still filled with anxiety and grief and pain, and sometimes even more so because I let my guard down. So Christianity didn't really work for me. It didn't deliver on what it promised. Or maybe you say, I tried prayer, but I don't feel God I don't feel like he answered me. It didn't take away my anxiety. Maybe you said, we waited until marriage to have sex, but my marriage is suffering now. It's not the, the marriage I expected. Or maybe you say, I got the right theology. I believed what they told me to believe, read the right books, but I'm still up at night worrying. Or maybe you're just saying, I believe God loves me, but I don't feel loved. 
Don't feel loved by God. What we have to understand is that the peace and joy and the happiness, yes, are promised to those who put their faith in Jesus. But it's only partially true now. It's already and it's not yet. We're saved from our sins and yet we're being saved. We're being sanctified. We're redeemed and we're being redeemed. So we have some peace and joy and happiness. We have some of what Jesus promises here, comfort from God, satisfaction. We see God by faith now, but someday all of the promises will be true in full. And so to live a blessed life of flourishing, we have to live with one eye on the future, even as we are living in the present. And the friend I mentioned earlier, he has to look into the future. And because he knows that his, his mom was loved by the Lord and saved, he knows, I will see my mother again. And one day God will resurrect her body. And we will live in eternity together. He has to look to the future for the comfort. And what happens is it may not feel like flourishing now, but the flourishing is promised. And what happens when we do that, we're comforted in part now, but awaiting our final comfort. We see God in part now by faith, but we're waiting to see him face to face. And here's what happens. The future, when we, when we live with an eye to the future, it actually trickles into the present. The future empowers you in the, in the present and delivers in part what it promises to you now. It's like a check that you carry in your pocket that you get to cash, a promissory note that will be cashed in full someday when Christ returns and brings his kingdom fully. Do you remember Dr. King's speech at the March on Washington in 1963. This weekend is, is a holiday commemorating his work. And I think of the I Have a Dream speech where Dr. King uses this future perspective where he uses his prophetic imagination to imagine the future that God has promised in order to receive comfort and be empowered in the present. Do you remember the speech? He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And then he goes to even further in the future. He says, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. He's quoting the promises. He's reminding himself of the promises of the kingdom of God. And he's saying, because I see the promises and believe in them, I can flourish even now in the midst of suffering. He says, this is our hope. This is the faith that I will go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. So to flourish in the present, we have to see that the kingdom is already and not yet and trust that those promises will be ours. But did you catch how the blessed are comforted? How are they satisfied? From whom do they receive mercy? 
scholars will tell you that these are called divine passives. If it, the English teachers in the room will tell you that they're in the passive voice, not the active. And the scholars will tell you that when it's put in the passive voice, that what is implicit is that God is the subject. He is the one doing the action, which means that he is the one who comforts. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one who shows mercy. And so maybe the most radical part of the Beatitudes is that Jesus is the person of the blessed life. Don't skip over verse 1 and 2, the introduction. What does it say? It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. He saw, he went up, he sat down, he opened his mouth, and he taught. There's a lot of action going on there, and it's all coming from Jesus. What's, it, what's Matthew trying to tell us? Well, these verses are pregnant with meaning because long ago, all the way back in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there was a man named Moses who delivered the people of God and was a prophet who gave the law and spoke God's words to the people. And in Deuteronomy 18, he said, there's another prophet coming. And this is what he tells them. He says, listen to him. What's happening here is that Jesus is that prophet, the one that was promised. And he's gathering the people together on another mountain. And he's saying, listen to me. I am that promised prophet. And the prophet spoke of one who would come to liberate the poor and the captives and proclaim the Lord's favor, to proclaim blessing, to atone for the sins of his people. And Matthew is presenting Jesus here as the promised one. So these, are not, these beatitudes are not esoteric teachings or aphorisms or laws to live by. They are first and foremost actions from Jesus which means they aren't primarily descriptive or prescriptive, they're performative. He opens his mouth and begins his ministry, and what does he do? He blesses. He blesses. At that moment, he's blessing the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the peacemakers, the persecuted for righteousness' sake, and so on. But he's not just the blesser. He's not just the one who comforts and satisfies and shows us God. See, he actually lives out the blessed life. Paul tells us that though he was rich, Jesus became poor for our sakes. He was meek. He didn't assert his rights. He hungered so much for righteousness, for the world to be made right, to be reconciled to humanity, that he came into the world and died on the cross to reconcile us to God, to make peace between humanity and God. See, he is the one who lives out the Beatitudes. We have to see that to understand what it means to flourish. Otherwise, we'll think, this is just a list for me to do. We've got to see that Jesus is the one who lives the Beatitudes. He is the person of the blessed life. These are true of him. Not that he is sinful, but he is brokenhearted over the sins of humanity and comes into the world to heal and to bless. But he doesn't, um, he doesn't leave us there. 
the last two verses of this passage, he turns. After pronouncing blessings, after blessing the poor in spirit and so on, he turns to the disciples gathered around him. He says, you too. He goes from the third person. There's a lot of grammar in this passage. He goes from the third person to the second person. You too. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In other words, he's saying, come and follow me into the blessed life, and you'll be blessed in a way that's different than you expect, in a way that's upside down from the kingdoms of this world, in a way that's only partially true now, but will fully someday be, someday be fully true. Come and follow me into the blessed life, and you will flourish And you too will become the Beatitudes. You too will show mercy and make peace and be devoted to God and you will receive the blessed life. Will you receive that call from him today? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.